Welcome, horse lovers. You're listening to the Horsepower Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Smink, ranch kid turned pro barrel racer, entrepreneur, and author. Each week, I'll be bringing you the most talented and accomplished, inspiring and interesting minds in the equine industry from every facet all around the world. Together, we can turn decades into days sharing knowledge and experience to elevate each other on our own personal journeys. So tighten your cinch, because here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to the Horsepower Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Smink, and as usual, I'm reporting from Downrange, a.k.a. Afghanistan. So, before we get into the interview today, I want to catch you up on what's been going on with me. So, if you're following me on social media, you know that it is Boss Babe Week. So, what exactly does that mean? Well, a couple of my friends and I, who all barrel race and also have careers, dedicated this week to showcasing how exactly we manage that. So, how are we able to be cowgirls with having a career? And in honor of that, I actually have one of my big bosses in the studio with me today. So welcome, welcome Ralph. Medium boss. <laughs> so on site, there are a couple different levels of people I work for. And if you're caught up with the Horsepower Podcast, you've probably heard Travis before on here, which he's my most direct line of um, leadership. He's directly over me as far as chain of command goes. And then there's a couple more, and then Ralph sits at the very top. So normally we record this podcast um, on the ground level, but we're actually in the penthouse connex today, so I feel like I've really made it having you in here in the studio, Ralph. So before we get into questions, let's just hear a little bit about you. What's your official title? Where are you from? And what exactly do you do here? Not a whole lot. Other no. than boss us around. Other than boss <laughs> people around, no. Um, so my name's Ralph. Um, I come from a small town in Oregon. I currently live in Snohomish, Washington. I am a operations manager for MAG Aerospace, and I've been doing contracting for four years. Prior to that, I would spent seven years in the military as a tactical systems operator. A lot of words that my following probably doesn't necessarily understand, but that's okay. That's okay. We will get into it. If you had a chance to catch my story this week, I showed you a little bit of what I deal with every day, where my dorm is, what the showers look like how many miles I actually walk to work, and I talked a little bit about what it is that I get to do. And just by the nature of our job, of course, we can't talk about everything, but what we can talk about is some some of the things we struggle with, um, rotating in and out of Afghanistan, how we manage that, um, and then also just how we see our careers progressing. So as I said, Ralph is one of my leadership bosses, and eventually someday I would hope to maybe fill his shoes or at least start working my way into a leadership role as this is my second year in this job. Um, so just to back up, can we talk a little bit about what it is that we do here? So just a general overview. A lot of my followers know that I get to fly and I also said that my actual title is an airborne sensor operator. So if you guys want to give that a Google, you can read more into it. But in the general sense, uh, Ralph, tell us what an airborne sensor operator is. Well, it's a broad term for a lot of things. Uh, these uh, these people come from a lot of backgrounds, including myself with a tactical systems operations. I flew uh, in the Air Force um, in the back of an MC-12. Uh, it's a King Air 350. We fly on the same type of aircraft, just a little bit different configuration, a little bit different mission set. 
Um, like Jenna said, we can't really talk a whole lot about it, but the backgrounds of our airborne sensor operators are extensive. Uh, they bring a lot to the table. Um, we've got intelligence backgrounds. Um, we've got special operations backgrounds. So they they kind of bring everything to the to the table to you know build our training program and to progress um, the capabilities of the systems because systems can only do so much. The operators are the ones that bring the best or the worst out of uh, those systems. So uh, we do have a lot of talent here that uh, we you know brief to the end users in Afghanistan as to what kind of services we can provide them um, and to best uh, utilize our our talents if you will um, I started out on this program four years ago as an airborne sensor operator um, and yeah like I, like Jenna was saying you know uh, the longer you spend out here the the likely you are to, to find other positions um, I've found myself fortunate to get out of the plane. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little tired of flying, but um, a lot of people really enjoy it. Um, I'm still definitely in that zone. It's a novelty still, to me that my office yep. is in the sky. <laughs> yeah, offices are in the sky. It is, it is really neat. Um, what you doing? Just making sure we're still rolling. Still rolling. No way. <laughs> no. <laughs> we got a first timer over first here. First <laughs> timer over here. Long time listener, first time caller. Um, no, but uh, like, like we we're saying, they, these operators bring a lot to the table. Um, you know, it's 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 really awesome the the types of backgrounds that we recruit from, and and uh, you know, building our program from what it used to be to what it is now. Especially seeing it develop over the last four years has been really impressive. But like Jenna said, you know, offices in the sky. It's a really neat opportunity, especially coming from a ground position like she did to transition into the plane. Uh, you know, it, it offers a completely different perspective and into the whole intelligence piece and what we can provide to our end users and how they utilize that to save American lives. So it's a very humbling experience. It's a very awesome uh, job to have. And I truly enjoy the culture and the people that I work with. And like you said, it's a diverse group of people from all across America with different jobs in the military. And obviously we're contractors now, so I'm not in the military anymore. Some of my coworkers are, maybe guard, some in the reserves. Um, we all have a little different setup, but what I think is so awesome about this job is that it's rotational. So I come out here for two months at a time, maybe more, just depending on the mission set. And especially this year with COVID, um, things weren't typical. So I'm out here going on three months now. And one of the things that I love is that when I get to go home, that's when I get to focus on my rodeo career. So like Boss Babe is highlighting this week, we are doing both. And I think it's not super typical for anyone to, you know, work for 60 days on and then focus on their rodeo career for 60 days. But the fact of the matter is most people who rodeo, at least when they're getting into it, have to balance work with home life with their careers so that's kind of what our focus is today just how we're managing that and then really focusing on that career mobility and how you stay you know on the track to make as much money as possible and be successful in whatever job it is that you choose so um, let's get right into it let's talk about flying a little bit there are some difficulties that come with an office in the sky it is cool to say but at the end of the day it's a lot more difficult than just operating a computer at a desk. Mm -hmm. So with flying, what are some of the difficulties or some of the stressors that we go through um, just in its nature? I mean, a, a, a lot of it I think is attributed to the pressure behind the work that we do. Um, the end users, I mean, the, how they use the intelligence that we provide for them, um, like I said earlier, does does end up saving lives or, you know, it's the difference of a 
operation going south or you know an operation succeeding with everyone getting back to their family so there is a lot of pressure on the operators to provide their best every time they go into the, the their office in the sky if you will um, another thing is general safety i mean we are still in a conflict zone uh, where there is a legitimate threat outside this base and Every time you get in that plane, you never know if it's the last time you're getting in it. So there is that, that uh, you know that, that stress of safety that's always always in the back of your mind that, you know, any at any time something can go wrong, and that's where the training comes into play, uh, and where you know our backgrounds and our training program here with Mag is is so crucial is to have that training so everything is reactionary, everything is is immediate. It's not a what do I do now? It's, oh, I, I know what to do now. Um, you know, that's, there's a lot of stress involved in that, especially prep mentally and physically preparing yourself for any scenario at any time. Um, I think, I think those are two of the main stressors. Another one I, I think is, um, you know, we all have our own lives at home and, you know, you have to disconnect from that, you know, for 60 days at a time or more, like Jenna was saying, like, you have to be here, you know, you have not, not just physically here, but mentally here, you're providing a very valuable, um, mission set to our end user and you have to be able to disconnect from whatever's stressing you back at home or whatever you're missing out on and focus on the now um because it, it's greater than you or and that's that's a lot of the uh you know from the military and now as a contractor what you're doing is bigger than yourself so you have to be able to disconnect from you know your personal issues and focus on on the now Absolutely. And I think with any career field and any job that you have, no matter what you do throughout the day, whether it's a good day or a bad day, when you go home, you can't let that affect your family and vice versa. So when I get to the seat or when I get to the aircraft, I can't let something that you know happened overnight or maybe a phone call or just some other drama affect what happens when you get in that seat. And I think that part of the reason that I've been able to stay on this job so long and succeed um, in this career field is awesome leadership, <laughs> obviously awesome <laughs> leadership, but just that ability to shut that off. And it's no different with rodeo. So regardless of what happened to you during your day, if you got a flat tire, if your horse was colicking, when you walk in the alley, you have to be 100% focused. And just with competing as in barrel racing, as it does on the plane, things can happen so quickly and you have to rely on your training and what you've been accumulating through your whole career as to what you're going to do in that time of decision. So I oftentimes find a lot of similarities in barrel racing and this career field because, you know, in barrel racing, you are the coach, you are the first person off the bench. It's just you out there. So when you're in the plane and things are going awry on the ground, you can't call back down and ask your leadership what what they would think you know you've you've got that chair all to yourself and the decisions that you make truly do affect more people than just yourself so operating in a stressful stressful environment like that really gives you some perspective too on the little things that might have derailed your day before um, so some of the things that I like to reflect on is you know when I was younger in my barrel racing career one thing might happen i might get a negative comment on instagram somebody you know looked at me the wrong way another competitor tried to rattle me and as a young competitor that would affect how i competed so just maturing that competition mindset and being able to shut that off and just focus on what you need to do is somewhat of a skill that you can polish throughout your whole career and it definitely translates from barrel racing to your career field 
Um, but with that, I'm also pulling some questions off of Instagram that I accumulated this week for Boss Babe Week. Um, and another one that kind of applies right now is, how do you stay out here on alert all the time? So it's no secret that we are in a war zone. There is an enemy outside the gate and sometimes indirect fire or something like that will happen. For me, the first time that we took fire on base, I was actually scared. I didn't know what to do with myself. I think I fell out of bed and I ran to the bunker. So two years down the road, you're probably the only one in that bunker too. <laughs> I actually was. Yeah. <laughs> two years down the road, you know it's not as big a deal. You hear the alarms go off. In my mind, if it's your time, it's your time. Being scared isn't going to necessarily help you, but also you don't want to be complacent and forget where you are. So how do you balance that? Where you're not stressed out about where you are all the time, but you're still not so relaxed that you know something could happen. I think a lot of people don't do a very good job at that. I mean, like you said, I remember my first rotation out here, it was at Kandahar, and I mean, we, we received IDF or indirect fire a couple times a day. So the first time I heard that alarm was, it was just fear and confusion. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd never heard anything like that before. Of course, they, they tell you what it kind of sounds like, but you never know what it is until you hear it. Uh, so, I mean, I didn't dive into the floor or run to a bunker or anything. <laughs> I kind of just froze in place and let the wait until I hear the boom. Okay. It wasn't near me. Okay. Now I'll go, go chill in a bunker until we get the all clear. And, and it, you know, it's fast forward 11 years and you know, now it's, I, I hear that thing go off and I'm just, Oh, here's, here's an interruption to my day, mm -hmm. but that's not the right answer. You know, like in, in your mind, you still, you still, the, those fears are still there. You know, the, the, I guess the complacency kind of, kind of takes place of it, but you, you still have to be able to realize that that is a legitimate threat to your life. Um, and that's why we get paid what we do. Um, but at the same time, like it's, it's kind of hard for it not to be an annoyance rather than a, um, you know, something that you respond to in the correct manner. I mean, technically we're supposed to find a hardened shelter, get on the floor. You know, the newbies, we, yeah. cause they're on the oh, floor. Yeah. You know, the newbies, you know, the people that are, that are, that are, you know, distinguished visitors here, never been, never been to this place and as soon as they hear that thing they're hitting the deck they're diving under tables and you're just laughing but at the same time they're kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing so yeah exactly you know we're, we're just following the rules we're technically the ones being you know doing doing the wrong thing but um i think if you you take that piece away um the whole being on alert i think for for me personally it was always about as soon as i stepped on that plane mm -hmm. um it started from the brief you know the brief i, I would focus in i would uh prepare the um, the slideshow for the pilots so that they ex knew exactly what was going to happen all contingencies were planned for all crew coordination was done and as soon as that door shut on that plane I was in the zone you know there's no more joking um, I saw it as a life or death situation I saw it as a you know I'm, I'm, I need to pr provide someone else my best because I if I was in their shoes on the ground I would hope somebody in the air above me was doing the same so however I would perceive my needs from the ground is how I would provide them from the air, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, if I if I had if I had coverage overhead, and I, I would give them exactly what I would I would hope I would need. So um, I always looked at it that way. As soon as that door shut, you know that that switch flipped in my brain, and it was go time. And that's how I stayed on alert. And as soon as we landed and that door opened and we debriefed, that's that's when it's time to decompress and turn it off. Head to the gym, take Head out the frustration. Gym. Get I love gains. that. And I want to foot stomp a little bit the fact that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So in aviation, 
you know every possible scenario that could go wrong and you have several different plans of action and I'll just relate that a little bit to barrel racing and the fact that you have to come up with that yourself and there's nobody over your shoulder that's going to tell you you know what to pack in your trailer how to be prepared for the road and and what to do or who to call if things start going wrong and as a younger cowgirl you know out there on the road I had great mentors who kind of prepared me for that so um, I love the fact that in this career field there's always somebody that you can learn from if you're willing to ask questions and humble your ego a little bit you can always constantly learn and get better and the same goes for barrel racing truly and when we get ready and we brief um, like Ralph was saying, that's kind of when you get in the zone, and that reminds me truly of your pre-run routine, which is also different from person to person, um, but about an hour out from a barrel race, I start, you know, getting my horse ready, putting my hat on, thinking of all the things that I want to do, and, and really, that's just like a mission brief with yourself, so I kind of wanted a foot stomp on that, but... That's a good way to put it. Um, moving into some of the transitions that we have to deal with, for me... When we come here or we go home, I actually do struggle, you know, about that first week just with getting back into things. So when I'm out here and I'm doing this every single day, I really start, you know, I really start to enjoy it. And this becomes life and I don't necessarily miss home or want to go home. I, I know that I'm out here for two months and that's just my life. So when I do actually get home, it's hard sometimes to shut this place off and to go back to the speed of being a civilian and doing whatever I want all day long. So I kind of want to talk about how you handle that. And I know you don't have barrel racing to deal with, but you're going home to a family with kids and it's just a two completely different worlds. And the way that civilians don't necessarily understand it out here, that's almost how I consider, you know, my work crew and everybody out here that they don't understand rodeo. So it's two just completely different worlds and it is difficult to jump back and forth in between them, but doing this for as many years as you have, you know, how to do it, um, what are some tips and how do you, how do you mentally stay in it, whatever world you're in? I think initially when I first started coming out here in the Air Force, it was more of a, um, I didn't know how to, how to handle it. You know, men mentally you, you can't turn your, you're not supposed to be able to turn yourself on and off, um, but you have to learn how to do that for the, for the sake of yourself and of your family. Um, you know, my wife and I have been doing this since, 2013 um, she's she's very used to me being gone she's very used to me coming back and and the whole routine that we do to get myself acclimated to real life if you will so um, I, th I think a lot of the challenges are, are in, in your in your head your own head you know you're, you're your own worst enemy when it comes to that kind of thing so it's it's doing whatever it is that makes it easier on you and and from a leadership perspective it's it's understanding that every single person that comes in and out of here on this program or this country for that matter has their own very unique and intricate intricate life you know they what what works for them doesn't work for me and vice versa so having that understanding to know that you know welcoming somebody here differently um you know each each person when they get back they need a little they need a little something different um, you know, they have different circumstances at home. Jenna's got, you know, her horses and everything going on back home that, you know, she's got to disconnect from and then be in the zone when she gets out here. You know, I've got people that are single, ready to mingle, and all they do is <laughs> go to the, you know, whatever country they want to when they're on R&R &R and they just blow their money away and, <laughs> and you know, go to Taiwan, go to the Maldives. Go to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they go to Yacht Week. They come back with eight new tattoos. I mean, so every, everybody's so different, and uh, what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for all, but 
I think for me, it's it's having that foundation, having that, uh, you know, that very strong relationship with my wife to where, you know, I, I know that she can take care of things while I'm gone. And when I'm home, I'm home. You know, like I, I disconnect from here. My focus is my wife and my kids. Um, and I make the most of the time that I'm uh, that I'm home. You know, like a lot of people don't have responsibilities outside of um, work uh, when they get home, but you know, I, I, I do. So I still have to be able to, you know, turn on and off even when I'm at home. I have meetings I gotta attend. I gotta sometimes go to, you know, corporate, stuff like that. So, you know, balancing that that is, is, is not easy, um, you know. My kids are getting to the age to where they, they, they know why I'm leaving, they know when I'm leaving, they're upset when I leave, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder each time to leave them. Um, and I think that it will come to a point where I can't do that anymore. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I, I look at it as I'm providing them with a life that, you know, they, that I never had. Um, and, and I will suffer whatever it takes, you know, to make them have everything that I didn't and everything that they need. So I, I can endure any pain as long as I see, you know, them flourish and, and them have, you know, want for not. That's, I mean, that's my motivation. That's how I, that's how I do it. I love that. And obviously I don't have a family that I'm making these sacrifices for, but to me, Taz is my family. Exactly. So yes, this is a difficult lifestyle, but it affords us, you know, a lot of things that maybe a job in the U.S. wouldn't. Um, and for me, this job isn't forever. For a lot of people, it isn't. Um, this is just, you know, building that career resume and building some skills and gaining experience so that one day when the time is right, you can either quit this and go home and do something else or move to a corporate job or move to the U.S. doing something similar. Um, but rolling into that, I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, upward mobility and how do you ever get into that mindset where you start thinking about leadership as a possibility. So as many of my followers know, I was in the military for about nine years and I had some leadership experience with that. But for the most part, in the military, it's structured differently. You're not hiring someone off the street or competing with people outside of your actual shop. You can take that YouTube. Okay. Um, so in this career field, something that I've noticed recently is just the style and manner in which my leaders lead. Um, and thinking about becoming a leader myself, I've started to digest their tactics and their processes. And honestly, this rotation has really opened up my eyes for how do you become a leader? How do you mentally get into that space? So, Ralph, one thing that I want to ask you is... Uh-oh. <laughs> how did you mentally get from being an employee to thinking that you were ready to become a leader? Do you remember what that first leadership role was like, or was that something that happened slowly through the military? Or just kind of talk us through that. So, I mean, if we go back to the military, I mean, it's like you said, you're, it's it's so different. You know, you have that hierarchical structure where, you know, you get you get that extra stripe, you get that extra responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's just handed to you. It's it's not something that you've necessarily earned um, other than, More you know, time putting in yeah, time, and, time and grade, time and service. It's kind of you're you're there for a certain amount of time and you're given the more responsibilities because that's your rank now. Uh, whereas, you know. The real world, if you will. I mean, I wouldn't even consider this the real world. This is, <laughs> this is still an extension of the military, if you will. But um, you know, once once you transition to a a real job, a civilian job, I should say that is probably better than saying real or fake. Um, <laughs> but once you transition to like a real position, you are now competing. Um, you know, for for your food, you're competing for that money, you, that responsibility, all that stuff. So. Um, 
you kind of, tra- it's hard to transition out of that because you get so used to the way it was in the military and that's really all you know. I mean, I joined at 17, so my entire adult life leading up to this position was the military. Mm-hmm. So it's all I knew. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people, like, um, we, have, we have quite a few that are in the reserve. So they, you know, they have real, or, you know, civilian jobs and they have their military obligations. So they, they, they see both sides. And I think that's very advantageous to, um, you know, progressing here. Um, or each, or, you know, like barrel racing, like having something that, that is competitive in nature or something that requires a lot of time and effort to put into it to progress through uh, life. Um, but I think once I transitioned to um, this this type of work, I came out as an airborne sensor operator and started to see the, you know, be an observer, like a sideline observer just watching. Um, it was a light, a, you know, a new to, new type of work that I've never been exposed to other than seeing contractors when I was deployed in the military. So I had to sit back and learn. Um, I took kind of the role of the, the note taker, if you will. I watched what I thought was not conducive to uh, personal progression, professional progression. I, and I saw folks that either had some or, you know, quite a few attributes that would make them stand out um, whether that's a good or a bad th- bad way. Um, there was an opportunity within two months of me being here um, for an OPSO position. That's an operations officer. It's the next step. Uh, Travis Greiner, who you talked about earlier, is, is, is in that position now. Um, so based off all that, that observation I did, I knew what leadership was looking for. Um, I tailored my resume to the position. Um, I knew it was coming, so I kind of like headed that out, if you will. Um, I knew a position, an opening was coming. I tailored my resume and submitted it to the leadership um, prior to that person vacating the position. Made sure that everybody that had a say in who was going to get that job knew that I was interested and explained my resume to them because they only had two months of experience with me. They didn't understand, you know, who I was, what my goals were and everything like that. I didn't have a lot of exposure to leadership as a line flyer. Um, or an a, a, you know, airborne sensor operator at the time. So I had to ex- basically explain myself um, and why a position like that would be, um, I would be the right person for it. Um, fortunately for me, I, I, I really fell under the, the site lead at the time, Brian Tatum. Um, you know, I, I kind of was just always picking his brain before or after flights. I was making myself available to learn. Um, a lot of people don't put in that extra effort. You know, they, they're here to do a job. They do the job. They go home. They work out. They, they eat. Then they go to sleep. You know, for me, it was how can I be the best at this? What do I need to do to beat whoever is the best at it right now? Um, what are they doing that's making themselves stand out? How do I emulate that or how do I surpass that? Um, fortunately, I, I did get that position. I, I stayed in the OPSO position for about a year and a half. Um, a site lead vacancy opened up and I kind of follow the same thing you know I always try to learn the job or two ahead of what I'm actually at right now so if I can if that you know whatever happens the sightly leaves can I fill that position without any degradation and capability and if the answer was no then I wasn't doing my job um, so that's that's kind of how I prepared for each each position to move up was to know the next position beyond me before I took it um, you know, put in the extra effort, show, show my interest, even though there wasn't a position open, you know, do the work to get noticed before there's an opportunity. That way there's no, there's no question, Ralph's your guy. Um, you know, if, if, if that's not the way site, uh, you know, site leadership is looking at me, then I'm not doing what I need to be doing. So that's, that's kind of how I, I guess, lived, lived out here was what do I need to do to get that next spot? 
I, I definitely appreciate that. And I think that unless you take a moment to sit down with yourself and make that plan or that goal, it's easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day -day where you just go to work, you fly, you go to the gym, and all of a sudden the day's gone and you're on this hamster wheel of no career progression because you do stay busy out here and it, it is easy just to complete the you know what's minimally required of you and still be a good operator but at the end of the day when you're looking at leadership and I think this applies to a lot a lot of career fields um, everybody has you know the ability to do their job well they they have degrees I mean we're all very talented and capable individuals but from what I've seen and what I you know aspire to is to give maximum effort on those things that you know aren't necessarily required like showing up early paying attention asking questions and and just being a continual student and really linking up with somebody that you want to be like and learning how they do what they do and that goes for my job here and it goes for barrel racing as well you know when i'm in the when i'm in the warm-up pen i'm not just focused on myself i'm looking for other nfr qualifiers and i'm seeing how they warm up, what do they do with their horses, you know, how do they engage or not engage with their competitors and just continually trying to emulate, emulate the success that I want to have. And although, you know, experience is obviously a limiting factor, there's only so much time that you can spend in a career field, you can quickly progress in, you know, putting forth that extra effort in the things that don't cost you anything. So looking sharp, you know, paying attention to detail, solving your boss's problems and, and, <laughs> you know, constantly, constantly reaching for that knowledge so that if you are given that opportunity, you're able to perform. You made a good point is the you know, the continuing education piece. Like a lot of people get complacent to where, wherever they're at or they're, they're satisfied with what they have. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you're, if you are where you are and you want to be there, that's, that's totally good. But if you want to continue to progress, it's, it's being a lifelong learner, you know, like there's, there's always a better way to do something. That doesn't mean you need to change, you know, something always needs to change. You know, it just means that somebody or some, something is a, is a better way of doing it, seeking out the, you know, the answer and then providing it rather than presenting a problem, you're presenting a, you know, you're identifying a problem and a possible solution to it uh, because you're continuously learning. Um, and I think that's a big piece of, of, you know, career and personal progression is to always, always learn. There's, there's no reason to stop. Um, there's always a better way to do something. There's always a better um, version of yourself out there. You just have to find them. I love that. And I think too that we can always learn from those around us whether it's how we want to be and exactly. also how we don't want to We've be. We've all seen leaders we you know we we don't we love respect. And we hate. Yep. Exactly. You love and you hate. I mean and there's there's also, you know, those leaders that you hate, there are some things that they do right, you know, and, and to be able to put your hate aside and look at it objectively and see what it is that they do well. Um and then, you know, take taking all the good and the bad, learning from each of those and then finding your own leadership style, your own uh, career style that um, you feel is ethically and morally correct uh, based on your background and upbringing um, and how you want to, to lead in the future. Like, uh, you know, you can continuously learn from those around you. Absolutely. And that kind of rolls into, you know, everybody has their strengths and their weaknesses. And for me, you know, I've had a ton of different leaders, a ton of different bosses, especially in this environment where, you know, Travis is gone now. So someone else stepped into his shoes, just taking what I like from them and applying that to my own recipe book. And that's the same with horsemanship. You know, you're not going to usually find somebody that does everything just right, but you can always learn a few processes from each person and kind of put that in your own inventory and, and you know, just take 
with you what you like and forget the rest. But it reminds me of, you know, growing up, at least for me, I feel like you can always remember that teacher that you absolutely loved or that coach that you just played your heart out for. And I was kind of reflecting on this before we came to this interview and just thinking, you know, why did, when I was a young girl, why did I want to get an A on my test in first grade? Or why did I want to win that game for my coach? And and for me, I think it was that motivation from them and them telling me, you know, good job and they're proud of me and I did it for that reward. And as we get older, I think sometimes our leaders or our coaches forget to congratulate us or tell us good job and that's a huge motivator for me and every single person's going to be just a little bit different especially being a female out here you know the type a alpha male that usually sits in my seat they might not need that as much as I do so as a leader and as a boss you have a huge responsibility where you've got to keep all of these different personalities in line you've got to figure out a way to motivate Jenna versus you know, my coworkers and come up with that recipe individually for us all and, and find a way to get us to want to do well and want to go above and beyond. Because, you know, if you've got a leader that, you know, more inspires you with fear or tries to get you to do something based on repercussion, if you don't, for me, I would rather just have that good relationship and do it because I want to. And, you know, I want them to be proud of me and I want to lean forward. So it's, it's interesting just to have digested all this and kind of thought about it and Ralph one of my questions to you is how do you manage that there's so many different personalities out here and there's so much that can go wrong just on the day-to-day and it's easy to nitpick or micromanage or Mm -hmm. find something every day to be super upset about because you know not everybody's going to be perfect we're not all going to perform you know 10 out of 10 every time Um, how have you learned that or what are some of the things that you could recommend for young leaders I definitely learned this the hard way is you know micromanaging there's a lot of pros and cons to it but the way I look at it and you know you can coin this trademark it if you want (laughs) I don't care but if I know exactly how I want it done I know exactly how I could do it and it would get the result that I want but that's that's my narrow view that's that's my view of how I think it should be you know there there's definitely someone here if not you know multiple people that if I gave them this task and let them run with it they may produce a product that I either did not anticipate or was much better than mine um, so I, I mean I could micromanage all I want and get the exact intended result that I'm looking for or I can let them utilize their creativity and innovation to produce something that's maybe better than my original idea um, and and if you, you, you it's not necessarily giving them the rope to hang themselves, you're giving them the opportunity to to be themselves. Um and like you said, everybody's different out here. You're you're one of the few females out here and your needs are definitely different than most of our guys and that's totally fine. But like as a leader you need to be able to identify that and I think that a lot of that comes with error. A lot of that comes with failure. Um I've always said that failure is the best teacher. I know a lot of people that are much smarter and, and like, you know, Socrates and all this shit, they probably said the same thing, but um you know, like, you're not going to learn better than failing, especially with the type of attitudes that we have out here. We're all very competitive. We're all very type A. Even even Jenna, you're, you're type A. So it, it's, like, when you fail, you, you feel it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's not just a uh, personal, um, like, eating yourself. It's, it's you see the look on someone's face when you fail them. And that's unacceptable to me. But you have to learn from that. Failure is a must. You have to fail because you're not going to succeed if you didn't, fail 10 times prior you know like like I'm sure you can you can equate that a lot to to barrel racing and and horsemanship but you know 
you need to fail and, and you need to be okay with failure. You need to go in with the attitude that I could fail, but I need to learn from that failure. How could I have done this better? Reflect on yourself, reflect on the situation, seek out feedback. Like that's another, that's another thing that people don't do is, is, is converse with other leaders or even pe- anybody, you know, how would mm-hmm. you have handled this uh, rather than, you know, have your, your initial irrational, emotional reaction to some form of stimuli, like take a step back and really evaluate it objectively. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of that transitions to once you get into a leadership position, you've, you've either failed yourself or others so many times and you've <laughs> learned from that, that you, you, you know how to like motivate somebody because you've been in their shoes or there's some kind of similarity between the situation they're dealing with and what you've dealt with in the past. And if you've been a lifelong learner and, and you've learned from other people who have failed, you're not only coming off of your own experiences, you're using information that you've gathered from other people's failures. So you're only, I mean, you're only bettering your, your leadership ability or your personal development by seeking out that, that, you know, that failure from others and those, those lessons learned from situations that are similar to your own. That actually really reminds me too of having a wide variety of horses or having a barn full of horses your geldings you're going to treat different than your mares and the age group and the you know the place that they're at in their career where if if you've got a young horse you can't spank them and get after them for silly little mistakes those are expected in the beginning and as they mature and get older you handle those horses a lot differently and even though you might not consider yourself a leader or a boss when you're barrel racing you absolutely are and your training program is a testament to how well you've done at home so we get to the race and it might only be 15 or 18 seconds but that's showcasing a lifetime of what you've learned and as a young trainer i used to make you know emotional decisions emotional reactions emotional mistakes i had a shorter fuse a shorter temper and as I've kind of matured and ridden a lot more horses, my style as a trainer has definitely matured with me. And I don't know, so the things that we do here relate so much to barrel racing, it's kind of crazy. But the process in which you succeed, I think across the board, can be the same formula. So seek out people who are ahead of you, people that want to, that you want to be like and ask questions and never have an ego so big that you think you're done learning because yeah, I mean, of every step you're yeah. going to learn. Check that ego at the door because, I mean, <laughs> there's always somebody that's, that's, that's been there, done that, that you can learn from. You know, being accepting of professional and constructive criticism, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard for people in our generation and, and younger to do. Um, you know, you've always been told, oh, you're doing such a great job. Here's your participation. <laughs> very true. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying that, like, you need to... It doesn't to, teach you how to it fail. It doesn't teach you how to fail. You know, it kind of... It kind of set you up for failure in that regard you need to be able to fail and do it uh respectfully and do it objectively you know what when you fail don't get have the initial upset feeling you need Mm -hmm. that you need you need that motivation that um you know you could have done better but then take a real step back and check your ego and learn from it and then seek out that criticism from others on you know people that have either been there done that or viewed or you know observed you failing and say, how do you think I could have done this differently? They may give you good feedback, they may give you bad feedback, but then again, that's that's more information that you can digest and, and learn from um, to maybe, if you're presented with that situation again, you'll have a different outcome. Yes, and the longer you get criticism, the better you are at handling it, because I remember early on... Because all you the, do is get criticism In this career field, I don't think my 
skin was as thick as it probably is now, and I honestly used to joke that the reason I don't wear makeup is so I can intermittently cry throughout the day. (laughs) (laughs) Makeup's not really in the culture out here. No one really does it, but I I won't lie, it has been a difficult journey, but one that I'm super proud of, and obviously one that I want to continue with as long as I'm able to. Um, And before we wrap up, the other thing that I really want to harp on for everyone listening is to surround yourself with like-minded people. So even in an environment like this, there are similarities and people that I can sit down and have a conversation with about something totally unrelated that applies to barrel racing or it applies to my goals within this career field. Um, The most important thing you can do is not allow people to you know, occupy your mental real estate that aren't good for you. So have conversations that are thought provoking, you know, sit down with your boss and ask him these ridiculous questions. You don't have to record it on a podcast, but yeah, you can come <laughs> in anytime. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed this and Ralph has been teasing me for a long time about coming on this podcast and <laughs> finally made it happen today. So Ralph, I really appreciate you so much. Yeah, I know absolutely. you have a busy day, but my followers I think are definitely going to get a lot out of this interview. So no, in closing, any other words of wisdom or? Uh, no, I mean you said surround yourself with like-minded people. I would I would also suggest surround like have somebody that can play devil's advocate. You know, like there's always you you it's easy to surround yourself with people that think exactly like you because it's comfortable. You know, go outside your comfort zone and and have a you know intelligent, rational conversation with somebody that has differing views than you. You know, there's there's always a, a something to learn from somebody that thinks differently. Whether, whether you're like those people are capable of having an intelligent conversation <laughs> rather than getting emotional or right. getting confrontational, defensive. Like that's beside the point. But you know, there's there's a lot to learn out there. And if if you're only around comfortability, then you're never really gonna stress your brain, if you will. You know, so you know, be be willing to to hear someone out that has a very dif- differing view than you do. It may either broaden your existing or strengthen um, what you already know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that. I always like talking to people that, that think completely differently. You know, I'm, I'm a very conservative slash moderate person <laughs> myself, but mm-hmm. I really enjoy talking with people that are far left, um, especially those that can, that can keep it professional. Right. Um, I mean, I live in Washington state, which is a horrible place for conservative. If you guys, um, if anybody else lives in Washington, um, anything east of, uh, um, of Snohomish area, you're kind of safe, but you Snohomish know, any, what? Any, yeah, I know, right? All, all the all the all the, the towns. Let's say Snohomish County, King County. If you're in that area, you're you're, you're probably subjected to a lot of uh, leftist ideas, which is totally fine. But you know, have, being able to have those respective conversations where, uh, or respectful conversations where you can actually learn from each other, like that's something mm-hmm. that's missing in society right now. It's so, it's so easy to, you know, to to align yourself with a like-minded person than it is to um, listen and hear some, hear something else out that is differing from your personal views. It may broaden what you, like I said, what you know, or it may solidify your ideals right. and, and like, okay, that's, that's way outside the, you know, it's too far right or that's too far <laughs> left. Let me, let's, let me come back more to the middle, but you know, it's, you're always going to learn something from every, every piece of information that you collect and throw into your, your box of tricks, if you will. So um, I would I would suggest obviously surrounding yourself with like-minded people for the mental sanity, but also <laughs> stress your brain sometimes. I mean, there's there's always my brain something... is constantly stressed here. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely here, definitely here. But everybody's yeah, I mean... got an opinion for sure. But oh, and they'll let you know it. One thing I do appreciate about this group is that you know we all have very different opinions, but 
for the most part, it just inspires intelligent conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's a fun atmosphere. There are de- definitely days when it's more difficult, but it's today, a very unique atmosphere fun. that's very difficult to explain. <laughs> if yeah, you don't I can't describe it, it exactly, to, to most people. <laughs> the way we berate each other, but still, like if, if if something were to happen, like you'd give them the shirt off your back. Absolutely. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's you, you don't see that anywhere else, and it's 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 probably probably part of the huge intoxication to <laughs> to keep coming out here and right? de- dealing with all your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you love it don't lie I, i've I honestly taught this group more about rodeo than they've ever cared to even know you're right but, you're right you know just get gathering fans one at a time mm-hmm. see you're a you're a non-like-minded <laughs> person that i've listened to and have broadened my horizons <laughs> take that to the bank awesome well thank you guys so much for listening i really appreciate you uh, make sure to like subscribe rate and review and let me know what you think of ralph I'm only going to tell him the positive comments. No, I want to hear them all. I want to hear them all. All right, you guys, thank you for listening to the Horsepower Podcast. Whoa. I said whoa. Before you go, I have a favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode today, please tag and share on social media to help us connect other horse lovers around the globe. Like, subscribe, and review. It would seriously help, and I will be forever grateful. And as always, thank you for listening to the Horsepower Podcast. Until next time, keep your head up and your heels down.